welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A federal judge keeping former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy in place for now, while the mayor of Denver declares an emergency over a surge of illegal immigrants. Ohio's going through changes, especially to its voting requirements. Find out what a late night legislative session means for Ohioans. Worried Pennsylvania voters say voting machines didn't count thousands of votes in the 2020 election. Now a county is going to recount all ballots by hand. An FBI report says 7,000 hate crimes happened in the U.S. in 2021, but a justice program puts the number at about a quarter million. Find out the reason for the discrepancy and how this is impacting communities. A federal judge is pausing the Biden administration's effort to terminate the Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy, at least until legal proceedings play out. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. A federal judge in Texas is preserving a Trump-era immigration policy. The Remain in Mexico policy requires illegal immigrants who claim they're seeking asylum to wait in Mexico until their case is heard instead of waiting in the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court initially ruled President Joe Biden had the authority to get rid of it. But it sent the case back to the lower court. The judge ruled against the White House Thursday. Analysts say the administration likely will appeal and request a stay. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott wants to investigate non-governmental organizations or NGOs that are helping illegal immigrants. In a letter to the state's attorney general, Abbott cited recent reports that NGOs may have helped with illegal border crossings near El Paso. It comes after the Heritage Foundation Oversight Project analyzed over 30,000 cell devices used by illegal immigrants. The devices were detected at NGO facilities at or near the border that process illegal immigrants. Heritage tracked the devices to nearly every congressional district in the country, according to the project's director, Mike Howell. Howell said this is proof that NGOs are working with the Biden administration to resettle illegal immigrants across the country. He said they're using taxpayer dollars and donations to do this, and they should be defunded. Meanwhile, Denver, Colorado declared a state of emergency Thursday because of a recent surge of illegal immigrants. Democrat Mayor Michael Hancock says they're struggling to house the homeless and illegal immigrants at the same time. We simply can't do both. It's stressing our system, it's stressing our our shelters in the city of Denver. The emergency order means Denver will be able to access additional emergency resources. The mayor called on the federal government, namely Congress, to take action to address the border crisis. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. In a late-night vote, legislators in the Ohio House chamber passed new voting laws for the state. The law stipulates increased photo ID requirements and fewer days to apply for absentee ballots. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. The legislation has now passed both chambers and will head to Republican Governor Mike DeWine to sign into law. The governor says he needs to read the final bill before he would consider signing it. But he says the system in Ohio is very good, adding that it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. Colin Marazzi is the deputy policy director for the Ohio ACLU. He opposes the bill and says Ohio elections are already extraordinarily secure. The legislation would require all voters to show a driver's license or photo ID to vote. State Representative Bill Seitz says anyone can get a photo ID at the BMV and that it's free. Meanwhile, State Representative Bashara Addison says counties can best decide practices for voter turnout. 
Here's Addison speaking on WKYC Channel 3. If we know that each county is unique, why doesn't each county have the ability to do what they need to do to activate their population? Under the law, absentee ballots would have to arrive a week before Election Day compared to the current three, and ballot drop boxes would be limited to one per county. To ensure security, drop boxes will also be subject to 24-hour video surveillance. GOP lawmakers say the changes will protect the integrity of Ohio elections and restore voter confidence. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A Pennsylvania county will recount its 2020 election results. That's after some voters said thousands of votes were not counted. Lycoming County in Pennsylvania will recount the county's 2020 election results for the presidential race and the Pennsylvania auditor. The county's director of elections says groups of 20 to 80 people started attending county meetings asking for the recount. He said in our county they approached our commissioners and leveled allegations that there were thousands of uncounted votes in our county based on what I believe are nonsense statistics. He says the county showed information to answer people's questions, but voters still wanted a recount, so they gathered 5,000 signatures to make that request. In his words, if there are 5,000 people who signed this petition and have this belief, then we need to hand count these ballots in order to restore public trust in the outcomes of our elections. Lehman said the county has about 70,000 registered voters, so to the commissioners, 5,000 is a lot of signatures. As Lehman put it, this is not something we want to do after every election, but we need to do it once at least in order to prove once and for all that our voting system counts the votes accurately and that there were not thousands of uncounted votes that were hidden by an algorithm or some other nonsense like that. Lycoming County votes by machine, however the recount will happen by hand. 40 county staff members are scheduled to hand count the nearly 60,000 paper ballots. The recount will start on the 9th of January and could take a week or more. Puerto Rico's movement for greater self-government just got a boost. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill for a referendum on three potential futures for the island. The Puerto Rico Status Act outlines terms on three options for the territory, full independence, U.S. statehood, or sovereignty with formal U.S. association, which is similar to the status held by the Marshall Islands and Micronesia. However, the measure has little chance of being taken up by the Senate. The bill's original sponsor, Democratic Representative Raul Grijalva, said that whether the measure gets a vote in the Senate or not, it will still set an important historical precedent. Republicans argued against the bill because it did not offer the option of maintaining the status quo and said it was a distraction as a U.S. federal government shutdown looms. Twitter has suspended the accounts of journalists who cover the social media platform. Among them were reporters working for the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Voice of America, and other publications. Here's Musk in a Twitter Spaces conference with journalists. As I'm sure everyone who's been doxing uh, would agree, you know, uh, showing real-time uh, information about somebody's location is uh, inappropriate, and I think everyone on this call would not like that to be done put to them. And and there is not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists, so-called journalists, and, and regular people. Everyone's going to be treated the same. They're not special because you're a journalist. No special treatment. Um, you, dox, you dox, you get suspended. End of story. The sudden suspension of news reporters followed Musk's decision to permanently ban an account that automatically tracked the flights of his private jet using publicly available data called Elon Jet. 
That also led Twitter to change its rules for all users to prohibit the sharing of another person's current location without their consent. The reporters defended their actions on Twitter Spaces conference, saying in the course of reporting about Elon Jet, they posted links to it. But Musk said the links to Elon Jet have his real-time location, which is the same as posting it directly. Musk tweeted on Thursday, quote, Criticizing me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. Meanwhile, Musk tweeted a public survey on the topic late last evening. He wrote, unsuspend accounts who doxed my exact location in real time. The poll had two options, now or in seven days. With nearly two million people responding so far, nearly 60% responded now. Hate crimes in the U.S. On Monday, the FBI released an annual report on them, but the results are in question. We have the vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom for some analysis on this. Joining us now is Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, a leading global Jewish human rights organization. It's great to have you with us today, Rabbi Cooper. Thank you for including me. Over 7,000 hate crimes were reported to the FBI in 2021. Experts and the Bureau's director say this figure is flawed. What are the consequences of under-reporting hate crimes? Oh, I think uh, it impacts the, the Jewish community across the United States on a practical basis. Uh, it also underreports uh, one of the biggest problems in the United States today in terms of uh, uh, targeting of a minority community. The Jewish community is only a little bit more than 2% of the American population. Uh, but even by these statistics, 63% of all religious hate crimes uh, are targeting a little over 2% of the population. And that figure is staggering. It's the third largest in the last 20 years. But what it omitted, um, New York City, Los Angeles, most of the state of Florida. So when you, uh, those are areas, obviously, LA is the third largest Jewish community in the U.S. New York City is the number one. So uh, unfortunately, if you were to put all of those together, the numbers would be significantly higher. Rabbi Cooper, those are some alarming statistics you mentioned. Now, in terms of the Jewish community, from 2020 to 2021, the reporting dropped from nearly all law enforcement agencies in the U.S. reporting hate crime data down to about two-thirds. That's due to a new reporting system, which the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council is calling on these agencies to report to. How would a more complete picture of the situation benefit Americans? Well, it would certainly inform our neighbors that the Jewish community is being targeted in an unprecedented way. It would help organizations like ours to uh, create a better sense of understanding uh, with other groups, but also be able to go to Congress, uh, to local law enforcement, to state funders, uh, and uh, allow us uh, to request uh, better education, better training for law enforcement locally around the country. The CEO of the American Jewish Committee said the FBI report is woefully inaccurate. He pointed out that 35 major U.S. cities reported no hate crimes at all in 2021. What's really happening on the ground in many U.S. cities in terms of hostility or acceptance to the Jewish community? Well, uh, I think it's that is the question. And what we've been emphasizing at the Wiesenthal Center is we need the FBI to be able to have a system where they can accurately count what's going on. Uh, we're not looking 
uh, to pump up numbers. We're looking for the numbers to reflect the reality on the ground. And uh, I would say one further thing, come back to that issue, which is uh, it's not just the police that have to step up in terms of their training and do a better job. We need the social media giants uh, to put in place uh, rules that will degrade the marketing capabilities of anti-Semites. You touched on the reality of these numbers. The Bureau of Justice Statistics approximates the true number of yearly hate crimes to be about 250,000. And the co-founder of Global Project Against Hate and Extremism says the U.S. only counts about 10% of these crimes and says the reporting gap is a disaster and needs to be fixed. What can be done here? Uh, I, honestly, I think it's, uh, in many ways, it's a bureaucratic issue. Uh, we, we do have 50 states. Uh, and we have many, many, probably thousands of jurisdictions. Uh, in order to turn things around, we have to be able to get a proper um, reporting system. It may need scrutiny from the committees in Congress that deal with the FBI, but I interact with the FBI. There are plenty of devoted individuals uh, and agents in place. Uh, I'm hoping it's only a bureaucratic issue but it has to be fixed because on a daily basis, the Jewish community uh, in the United States is extremely concerned for the safety of our kids. The fact that in most synagogues today in the United States, you have to go through the equivalent of airport security to go and say your prayers on a Sabbath morning. Uh, there's a gap between the reality that we're feeling and the numbers that have uh, been reported. Thank you so much for shining a light on this. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Just ahead, a new technology is trying to keep schools safe with artificial intelligence. The program can monitor video cameras and detect a gun before a shooting starts. And residents of Philadelphia's Chinatown are fighting to stop development on the new NBA basketball arena in their neighborhood. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Authorities in Idaho are looking for the public's help in finding the owner of a white Hyundai Elantra. The vehicle was spotted near the crime scene where four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death. One month after the shocking murders, police say the car could play a critical role in their investigation. Some people simply don't see the news and may not know that we're looking for it. So if we get the word out there, hey, maybe your neighbor has one in the garage that they don't drive very often. Maybe... Um, the, there's one that's just not on the registration database. Let us know. Moscow police have narrowed the model years of the Elantra down to between 2011 and 2013. An Oregon judge put a hold on a voter-approved ban on gun magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. The injunction was put in place yesterday until questions about the ban's constitutionality can be decided. The ban was narrowly passed in this year's midterm elections. The same judge extended his order blocking the law's permit-to-purchase provision as well as part of the Measure 114 earlier this week. It would prevent a firearm sale until the results of a background check come back. Gun sales and requests for background checks have soared since then. Many fear the new law would prevent or delay the purchase of new firearms. A hearing on the background check provisions is set for December 23rd. 
Northern California toddler Jasper Wu was fatally struck by a stray bullet while sleeping in his car seat. Prosecutors yesterday said the bullet hit as rival gangs shot at each other on a California freeway. On November 6th, California Highway Patrol officers responded to the type of call that those of us that wear a badge dread responding to. The death of an innocent child due to senseless violence. The brazen crime that caused Jasper's life to be cut short after only 23 months shocked us all. As did the, as did the horrific callousness and indifference involved the part of the suspects. Thanks to the U.S. government, thanks to the police officers, as well as everyone in society who has shown compassion for this tragedy. Thank you all. The one-year-old boy was just weeks away from turning two years old. He was killed on November 6th last year in Oakland when his mother's car got caught in the crossfire. The district attorney said the defendants are part of rival gangs out of San Francisco. Prosecutors said alleged members of the Chopper City gang were driving along the freeway in an infinity while alleged members of the Eddie Rock gang were in a Nissan Altima. A shot fired from the Infinity missed the Altima and instead went through the windshield of the Wu family's car. The district attorney said the bullet was found lodged in the seat behind Jasper's car seat. Authorities filed murder charges against three suspects. A fourth suspect was killed in a separate shooting last month. A California Highway Patrol commander was found dead in Tennessee days after a man was arrested for her husband's murder and she herself was arrested for trespassing. Deputies in Tennessee were dispatched to a home where they found her body. Authorities stated that her death does not appear to be a result of foul play. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation would not release further details and declined to answer if suicide was suspected. Julie Harding and her husband, Michael Harding, were in the middle of a divorce when he was murdered in September. Two days prior to her own death, Harding was arrested on suspicion of trespassing at the home of her husband's girlfriend. The girlfriend also expressed fear to the police in September and reported Harding for harassment and stalking in October. Artificial intelligence could monitor video cameras for potential guns. The goal is to help stop school shootings. And today's Andrew Thomas has more. It's been a decade since 26 people died at the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. The tragedy reignited debate across the country over mental health, gun control, and school security. Omnilert says its new AI could be part of the answer. Our uh, artificial intelligence recognizes the presence of a, a gun threat via security cameras and what is had been remarkable about many active shooter situations is that uh, the assailants are actually visible in security cameras for seconds and sometimes minutes. Kenneth Trump is president of National School Safety and Security Services. Your attention, please. The area is under lockdown. He says some new technology could be helpful in active shooter situations, but only if the school staff is adequately trained. What we're seeing is a, we're seeing an uptick in gun and other weapon incidents in use in school. There is a great deal of anxiety and pressure on school administrators to do something, do it differently, and do it now. He says the first and best line of defense should be a well-trained, highly alert staff and student body. There are some security tools that are resourceful and helpful to school officials, 
but it, you need to make sure that we're investing in people and we're not seeing that. We're getting, we're put, seeing a skewed focus on target hardening. Target hardening refers to building security. According to a 2014 report by the Connecticut Office of the Child Advocate, the Sandy Hook shooter spent years with untreated psychiatric conditions, including anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Poor mental health also played a role in other school shootings since Sandy Hook, such as Uvalde, Texas, last May, and Parkland, Florida in February 2018. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Oregon's Attorney General announces the largest environmental damage fine in the state's history. It's targeting a former manufacturer of toxic PCBs. For their contemptible role in polluting Oregon for the past 90 plus years with PCBs, the Monsanto company will pay the state of Oregon $698 million for the cleanup and remediation of PCB contamination of our lands and waters. PCBs were formerly used in coolants, electrical equipment, such as fluorescent lights and other devices. They still contaminate the state's landfills and riverbeds and show up in fish and wildlife. The settlement stems from a lawsuit filed by Oregon against Monsanto in 2018 for pollution in the state until PCBs were banned in 1977. PCB pollution-related settlements are becoming increasingly common. But the AG said Oregon's settlement is magnitudes larger than any other Bayer, the company Germany that now owns Monsanto, said in a statement that the settlement fully resolves all Oregon's claims and releases the company from any future liability. The agreement contains no admission of liability or wrongdoing by the company. And in basketball news, the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers are looking to build a new downtown arena called 76 Place right next to Chinatown. Concerned residents got a chance to meet with 76 Place developers and voice their opposition. Uh, my, my question is really simple. Why can't you guys stay where you are? Yeah. What, what? Concerned Chinatown residents packed the Ocean Harbor restaurant Wednesday night. It was their first meeting with developers since the arena was proposed back in July. Debbie Wei is founder of American Asians United. She echoed many residents' concerns about whether Chinatown will survive a new development like this, pointing to the addition of Capital One Arena in D.C. that nearly extinguished the local Chinatown. In D.C., residents told us they were forced to move out when they could no longer afford to pay their taxes or their rent. Wei said D.C.'s Chinatown used to look very much like theirs, but once the arena came, locally owned businesses quickly gave way to chain stores, and the Chinese community was gone. Meanwhile, David Gould, who represented the developers, explained that relocating stadiums downtown has become a trend in sports, and that their goal is not to threaten the community, though the crowd seemed unconvinced. One thing that we're very aware of is the sensitivities and, frankly, the trauma that this community has experienced from large-scale development in the past. Um, that's not something that we are... Gold says the next step is to set up a steering committee that'll include members of the Chinatown community to further discuss the project. Reporting by Dave Martin, NTD News. The U.S. immigration court system's backlog is at an all-time high. An analysis by a clearinghouse at Syracuse University found there are more than 2 million cases pending. The largest backlog is in Miami-Dade County, Florida, with more than 100,000 pending cases. 
Next is Harris County, Texas, with more than 75,000 cases, and then Los Angeles, with 74,000 cases. Wait time for a hearing on those claims is now about 4.3 years. According to the analysis, immigration courts have increased the pace of hearings, but it still can't keep up with the influx of new case filings. And coming up, it's been 15 years in the making, but Canadian lawmakers voted unanimously yesterday to make a bill combating forced organ harvesting into law. An ex-U.S. Marine pilot faces extradition from Australia to the United States. That's after he allegedly trained Chinese military pilots. We'll have the details when we return. Welcome back. Canadian lawmakers voted unanimously to pass a Senate bill to combat forced organ harvesting taking place in China. The law will create new offenses for organ trafficking and tourism. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more about the law 15 years in the making. An exciting day and a step forward. That's what the sponsor of the bill, Garnet Janice, had to say about the bill's passage. After 15 years of effort, we're finally get, going to get the bill banning forced organ harvesting and trafficking uh, to pass Parliament. Uh, and I want to salute all those who have been involved in this effort over the last 15 years. It's a great day. Janice says he wishes the bill would have passed sooner, but it's better late than never. He says the successful passage is thanks to the efforts of a large number of people and that the biggest contribution has been from the community that's gone out and gathered petition signatures. I want to recognize, of course, David Kilgore, David Matus did the initial work of, of uncovering and exposing uh, all that was happening in China with forced organ harvesting and, and, and trafficking. And of course, the Falun Gong community has been, has been so active protesting, petitioning. Members of parliament across party lines unanimously voted in support of the bill, but successful passage didn't come overnight. The first iteration of the bill was proposed back in 2008. After multiple versions of similar legislation failed to culminate, it finally came to fruition. Authors of previous bills say they were inspired by the work of Canadian human rights lawyer David Matus and late former Member of Parliament David Kilgore. Matus and Kilgore were pioneers in exposing and fighting against organ harvesting crimes. They released a groundbreaking report in 2006 called Bloody Harvest and a book of the same name in 2009. They concluded the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, orchestrated forced organ harvesting from Falun Gong practitioners on a large scale, killing them in the process to sell their body parts for profit. Falun Gong is a meditation and spiritual discipline based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The persecution of practitioners in China started in 1999 and is ongoing today. Matus called the new legislation life-saving. Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Chong says it's long past time for Canada to take action against authoritarian regimes abroad, particularly the one in China. And that previous approaches taken by Western democracies in getting them to improve issues of human rights have proven to be unsuccessful. All that has happened over the last 30 years with broadening and deepening trade and investment ties is that we have provided these authoritarian regimes with the wealth and prosperity that they are now using to reinforce their authoritarianism. Chong says Canada needs to take a stronger stand on defending values like freedom, democracy, human rights and the rule of law, and that it begins at home by passing measures like this. 
The law will make it a criminal offense for a Canadian citizen or permanent resident to go abroad to receive an organ taken from someone who did not give informed consent. It will also amend the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act to deny a permanent resident or foreign national access to Canada if they've engaged in activities relating to the barbaric practice. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Next, we zoom in on the story of a 30-year-old Chinese man and how, through his Twitter account, he became one of the most important conduits of information as recent protests sparked across China. As China's historic protests against COVID-19 curbs erupted in late November, a Twitter handle named Teacher Lee is Not Your Teacher became an overnight sensation. The account and the man behind it reposted details and footage of protests from across China, skirting China's online censorship from his home in Italy. Even in some small cities and in local neighborhoods, people were demanding lockdowns be lifted. Things happen far beyond what we have seen. It's just that much has gone unreported. Li's posts largely reached a more tech-savvy generation of young Chinese. They're using virtual private networks, or VPNs, to circumvent China's Great Firewall and access uncensored content on platforms banned in China, like Twitter and Instagram. He says much of his content was sent to him and that he got thousands of messages per day. In the past, Chinese people weren't willing to express themselves because they knew it's very dangerous. For example, when you type some high-profile people's names online, you would be interviewed by the police. This time, we have seen many people chanting in front of the police. All the grievances that have been suppressed for so long would also drive people to express themselves. Li is a painter and former art teacher from Anhui province in eastern China. He explained that during the height of the protests, he was posting every few minutes and sometimes only got two hours of sleep per night. His followers skyrocketed from 140,000 in mid-November to over 860,000 now. This account has become a symbol of the Chinese people's pursuit of freedom of speech. It represents the things we need to know and the things we want to know. It represents our right to know. The protests have been credited for China's recent easing of COVID-19 restrictions. Some also called for China's ruling communist regime and leader Xi Jinping to step down. Demonstrations have calmed amid a heavy police presence and some protesters getting arrested. China's foreign ministry has said rights and freedoms must be exercised lawfully. Li says his efforts have made him vulnerable, receiving death threats, while his family back home has been questioned by police. The most important thing is not my life, but the security of this account. Even though this account is no longer safe or it is deleted or something else, the awareness of people to speak, to express themselves has started. He adds that people in China can go home now that lockdowns have lifted. Right now, I am a person without a future. Despite this, he says he's determined to keep going.
Former U.S. Marine pilot Daniel Duggan, who was arrested in Australia, is accused of breaking U.S. arms control law. That's for allegedly training Chinese military pilots to land on aircraft carriers. Duggan's lawyer, Dennis Morales, on Friday called those charges political. He said Australia should reject extradition because it does not have a similar law. We have directly written to the Attorney General and we have put him on notice, squarely and fairly, that in the event that he is to accept this extradition request, he will be bringing or risks bringing the administration of justice in Australia to disrepute. Australia has a bilateral extradition treaty with the United States, and the country's attorney general must decide on the extradition request by December 25th. Duggan's lawyer also claimed his client faced inhumane treatment in custody and was reportedly refused medical treatment by Australian authorities. The pilot was arrested in a rural Australian town in October after returning from China. He's now an Australian citizen after renouncing his U.S. citizenship in 2017. Days before Duggan was detained, Britain announced a crackdown on its own ex-military pilots for training Chinese military pilots. They worked at the same South African flying school Duggan had worked at. A new move from Washington, the Commerce Department has put 22 Chinese microchip makers on a trade blacklist, shutting off their access to U.S. technology. High on the list are China's top flash memory maker, YMTC, electronic giant, CETC, AI champion, Cambrian, and others. These companies will be blocked from using technology made anywhere in the world with U.S. equipment. The announcement came amid concerns about their close ties with China's communist regime and other entities supporting China's military. In November, the Biden administration barred sales of equipment from Chinese telecom and video surveillance providers Huawei, ZTE, Hydra, Hikvision, and Dahua, citing national security threats. And that followed an October ban on exporting advanced semiconductors made from U.S. research. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, with Western nations still sanctioning Russia over the war in Ukraine, Russian President Putin is looking east to boost gas sales, particularly to China. Tensions are high between Serbia and Kosovo, and now Kosovo has applied to join the EU. We'll return with that and more here at NTD News after this break. The U.S. is expanding its training of Ukraine's armed forces as it continues to fight against Russia's invasion. The Pentagon announced the new plan on Thursday. They say the program is expected to start next month in Germany. This program, this expanded training, will uh, provide training to approximately 500 Ukrainians per month. Uh, It's essentially focused at battalion level. And so as we move forward, uh, we will stay flexible and adaptable uh, based on the needs of our Ukrainian partners uh, and the evolving situation in Ukraine. America's 7th Army Training Command will oversee the program, which will include live fire exercises as well as maneuver training. President Vladimir Putin said on Thursday that Russia would increase gas supplies to the east, especially China. He also set prices for sales to Europe using an electronic platform. An important step to reduce the impact of sanctions and other hostile actions against Russia will be the development of port and pipeline infrastructure in the south and east, including increasing the export of natural gas. 
But if we are talking about setting up an electronic platform, then this can be done within the next few months. Moscow is looking to boost gas sales to countries such as China and Turkey. This as Ukraine conflict sours trade with the West. But building the infrastructure could take years. Russia started selling natural gas to China at the end of 2019 via the Power of Siberia pipeline. That supplied about 10 billion cubic meters, or BCM, of gas in 2021. Its full capacity of 38 BCM should be reached in 2025. Russia also plans to construct a new pipeline, the Power of Siberia 2, via Mongolia. The goal is to sell an additional 50 BCM of gas per year. Putin said the projects would allow Russia to boost its gas sales to China to 48 BCM annually by 2025 and to 88 BCM by 2030. Kosovo's prime minister has formally applied to join the European Union. The application yesterday launched a process that could take years, if not decades. One condition is normalizing relations with neighboring Serbia. Kosovo is the only country in its region until now not to have applied to join the European Union. There has been reluctance within the 27-nation EU to accept new members, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led EU nations to devote more energy to improving relations with the six Balkan countries. Those include Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia. Albanian-majority Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008 with the backing of the West. Kosovo is not a member of the UN. Five EU states, Spain, Greece, Romania, Slovakia, and Cyprus, have refused to recognize its statehood. Its independence is recognized by around 110 countries, but not by Serbia, Russia, or China, among others. Thousands gathered in Istanbul for a second day Thursday. They oppose a verdict that could lead to the city's popular mayor being ousted from office and barred from running in elections. A court sentenced Ekrem Imamoglu to two years and seven months in prison for insulting public officials. He is seen as a strong potential challenger to President Erdogan. He spoke after Wednesday's ruling. This court case has proved that there is no justice left in Turkey. This case is led by people who do not want to bring values such as justice and democracy to Turkey. He said voters would respond in the presidential and parliamentary elections, which are due by next June. The vote could mark the biggest political challenge yet for President Erdogan, who is seeking to extend his rule into a third decade. A six-party opposition alliance has yet to agree on their presidential candidate. A jail sentence or political ban on the mayor would need to be upheld in appeals courts, potentially extending an outcome to the case beyond the election date. Critics say Turkish courts bend to Erdogan's will. The government says the judiciary is independent. Thousands of demonstrators took to the streets of Brussels during this week's EU summit. They disrupted public transport to protest the rising cost of living. The Brussels police said over 16,000 people turned up at the demonstration. It was organized by trade unions representing many public sector workers. They demand better pay and working conditions as inflation rises across Europe. One protester's banner reads, increase wages and pensions. Another says, Price rises are suffocating us. We can't cope anymore. 
Gas and electricity prices have surged in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Belgium's headline inflation figure stood at over 10 percent in November, while consumer inflation within the eurozone as a whole is at around 10 percent. One demonstrator said, quote, if you add it all up, you have to choose. You travel, you heat the house, or you eat. It's something not conceivable in 2022. An American student reported missing in France more than two weeks ago has been found in Spain. Kelly Deland Jr. vanished from the French town of Grenoble. His father, Ken, was in the middle of a call with CNN today when he suddenly hung up. He later sent the message that he had good news. He had just talked to his son. He added, he is alive. That's all I can say. A French official confirmed Deland spoke to his parents Friday, but no additional information was released. Deland is a senior at St. John Fisher University in Rochester, New York, studying abroad with the University of Grenoble Alps. His parents hadn't heard from him since November 27th, and fellow students reporting him missing two days later. Deland was scheduled to return to the U.S. tomorrow. Mexico's Senate passed a controversial electoral bill, and one opposition lawmaker had a peculiar way to show her disagreement. The senator wore a dinosaur costume in the chamber as the proposed legislation was up for a vote. She carried a sign saying, Jurassic Plan. The moment was captured on the country's Congress channel as the chairman asked her to respect the process. The opposing party says the proposal, known as Plan B, seeks to eliminate the governing body in charge of organizing elections in Mexico. But the president says the initiative fulfills a promise to voters to adopt a policy of austerity and creates electoral authorities that guarantee legitimate elections without the possibility of fraud. The bill is now headed to the lower chamber, where it's expected to pass. And just ahead, an international squadron of fighter jets protects the World Cup. Britain's Royal Air Force has partnered with Qatari Air Force to keep the tournament secure. The Grand Ball of the Debutantes of Venice is moved to April. The organizer of the event hopes the delay will also allow more young couples to sign up. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. to have you back with us. The British could soon be able to take liquids through airport security. The government plans to ease the rules around liquids and large electrical goods by 2024. Most of the major UK airports could allow passengers to take up to two liters. It's all possible because of a new type of scanner. The new screening equipment should be installed at most major airports across the country by 2024. The CT scanners create a 3D image of what's inside passengers' bags. Laptops can stay tucked away, and passengers will be able to carry up to two liters of liquid. That's 20 times the current limit. The UK's Department for Transport says it hopes the new technology will reduce the weight while still detecting potential threats. But it will take two years to be fully implemented, and until then, passengers must follow the existing rules. An international squadron of fighter jets is tasked with protecting the World Cup. Britain's Royal Air Force has teamed up with the Qatari Emery Air Force to carry out the mission. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the squadron. Eight Eurofighter Typhoon jets stationed at Dukan Air Base are helping keep the World Cup secure. They are part of 12 Squadron, a joint program between the Royal Air Force and Qatari Amiri Air Force. 
what we are doing along with our Qatar Miri Air Force partners, uh, flying a variety of platforms uh, is part of the multi-layered defence operation uh, of what is ultimately a civilian sporting event. So it's great to be part of that and if we continue to do our job well, most people won't know that we're here. Air Commodore Mark Bigadike is in charge of the UK part of the operation. He says the multi-country cooperation at Qatar is complex. So we started working uh, with the Qataris on this particular operation uh, over two years ago now, uh, working through the operational plan, uh, ensuring that everything was in place and, and working to the point that we've got today where we've got six nations, uh, a Qatari-led operation uh, in place. Uh, so it's been a significant amount of work. So far, there haven't been any major security incidents. Military personnel from the U.S., Italy, France, Pakistan, and Turkey are also involved in keeping the World Cup safe. The British involvement also extends to the Royal Navy and Army. Around 550 personnel are deployed from the U.K. The British Armed Forces bring experience from the London Olympics. The U.K. certainly has a pedigree in this kind of operation. People will uh, naturally think of uh, 2012 London Olympics which we in which we played a part and then any other summits and, and, and so like as well as the more well-known international operation. The 12 squadron unit started in 2018 as a training program after Qatar agreed to purchase Eurofighter Typhoon jets. When the matches are over, collaboration between the two air forces will continue. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A last-minute hitch is delaying Venice's glitzy debutante ball until April. While disappointing, it also means there's more time to get things just right. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the elegant event. Young couples were ready to don floor-length dresses and tuxedos for the grand ball of the debutantes of Venice. Then there was a last-minute hitch. The problem? How to serve a gala dinner to 250 guests and keep attendees warm. I am very sorry because I would have liked to have had this experience, but I am also happy to be able to do it at the end of April, so I can't wait until the moment is here. The ball was postponed just a week before the planned date. The evening was to begin with a gondola ride through the canals to see the city lit up for the holiday season. Instead, this couple practices their waltz, while organizer Silvia Casarin Rizzolo provides instructions. They've been practicing, but they still occasionally step on each other's toes. Aru is a snowboarding instructor and admits dancing doesn't come easily. Snowboarding I can do with my own rhythm without worrying about what is going on around me. While the waltz, I have to do to music. But no, it's not harder, I just have to practice as one does for everything. I practice snowboarding a lot. I have also practiced waltz a lot, and I will even more. Kasserin Rizzolo hopes the delay will mean even more debutantes have a chance to sign up. She emphasizes the Venice ball will be inclusive. The only requirement is that debutantes must be between ages 16 and 25. We have not requested any other characteristic, so as opposed to the great event which has inspired us, the most important event of this kind, the Vienna Opera Ball, we have eliminated any type of aesthetic requirement. So in the application, there's no requirement for weight, height. Tickets cost $1,300 each. VIP tickets go for $3,000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
An emergency in Berlin this morning, an aquarium suddenly burst, spilling water and debris onto a busy main road. About 100 emergency personnel rushed to the scene. Berlin police said two people were injured by glass shards. The Aquadome Aquarium is said to be the world's largest freestanding cylindrical aquarium, rising some 50 feet high. It's home to around 1,500 exotic fish. About 350 people staying in the hotel were asked to leave the building. Emergency responders had been unable to access the ground floor of the building due to the debris. Search and rescue dogs were sent in. It's still unclear what caused the burst. When the structure was completed in 2003, architect Michael Jessing assured that a Hollywood-style blowout, what he called a worst-case scenario, was unlikely to happen. And coming up, dogs in Chicago experience freshly cooked meals and treats on display at a food bar. The eatery offers specific meal kits for canine companions. And dogs can now be identified by their nose print thanks to a South Korean company. The tech works by scanning a dog's nose with a phone camera linked to an app. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Dogs in Chicago are getting an upgrade from their mundane food at a restaurant specifically catering to man's best friend. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on this canine cuisine. Breadwell is a newly opened eatery in suburban Chicago. You might mistake it for a place to grab a bite to eat. If you step inside, you'll see freshly cooked meat and other ingredients on display at a food bar, just like Chipotle or Subway. But the big difference here is that the food is strictly for man's best friend. Dogs are about being your best friend. They just want to do everything with you, and we want to do everything with them. And that's where we kind of flip the name Breadwell because all dogs are Breadwell. All dogs are bred to be your best friend. All dogs are bred to love you. So that's how we came up with the name. When new customers come to Breadwell, they answer questions about their dog. Then the restaurant's team establishes a meal plan specifically for that pooch. When customers come in, the first thing that we'll do with them is take them through an online quiz that asks questions about their dog, their weight, their age, their general health and activity level, et cetera, so that we can learn more about their dog. Rich Rotemel has over 45 years of experience in the pet food industry. He's helped Heinz run their over $2 billion pet food product division. We have theoretical values based on the weight and the activity of the dog so that you don't overfeed your dog or you underfeed your dog. Um, one of the biggest problems in the pet industry with dogs is over 50% are overweight. And it's because the consumer loves their dog but doesn't know exactly how much to feed. We've taken that equation away from them. The eatery offers four protein choices, beef, chicken, pork, and salmon. Fruit, vegetables, cheese, or bacon can also be added to any meal. Pre-made products like treats and even a Gatorade-like drink made specifically for dogs are also on Breadwell's shelves. You can take the quiz and design a meal kit specifically tailored for your pup at www.breadwell.com. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Dogs can now be identified by their nose print thanks to a new technology developed by a South Korean company. The system could help people find their lost pets. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new tech. IDing a lost dog can be difficult, but many owners opt out of getting tattoos or microchips for their pets. 
but a new technology allows dogs to be identified by their nose prints. The technology works by scanning a dog's nose with a mobile phone camera linked to an app. The Soul-based AI and biometrics company says each dog's nose is as unique as a human fingerprint. So it's a biometric recognition technology for nose patterns for animals like dogs and cats and also cows and deer have it as well. So it's a 3D biometric algorithm based on AI and deep learning that we have now put into smartphones. According to the company, the technology is 99.9% .9 accurate. The company has been collaborating with the South Korean government since 2019. We recently just finished the project with the Korean government that went from 2019 to 2021 that was meant to prove the feasibility of this technology to be used in a national level. So right now we are about to start the regulatory sandbox that was approved by the Korean government. The project aims to be completed by 2024. The cost has not been finalized, but the company expects to charge around $14 per dog. For many owners, that's a low price to pay for their pooch. If they were found by a Good Samaritan or shelter or somebody, they could use the camera app to identify the animal and then contact the owner because it will be all in the system, so you can use the app to communicate between the owner and whoever finds the animal and return them safely back home. According to the South Korean Animal and Plant Quarantine Agency, nearly 120,000 animals were lost or abandoned in 2021. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Athletes are braving snow and freezing temperatures in Antarctica. An Irish runner has won the Antarctic Ice Marathon this year. Organizers say he set a time record on the continent. At some point, I was just getting emotional, thinking of my brother, my mother, like uh, everyone with me. I don't even know why I get so emotional. I just had to go so deep. Uh, you know, and I felt like all those people were with me. Amazing run. Best run I've ever seen down here, obviously. You know, with a record. An amazing tribute to his brother, his family, everybody in Tipperary and in Ireland. So everybody's going to be very proud of this performance. Sean Tobin clocked in at 2 hours, 53 minutes and 33 seconds for the traditional marathon distance of over 26 miles. The race director said he had never seen anyone run so fast in these conditions, which were like running in sand. In the women's race, a runner from the United States won with 4 hours and a bit over 25 minutes. The event at Union Glacier this week was the 17th of its kind. More than 60 runners from 20 countries participated in the southernmost marathon on Earth. The stunning image quality of Webb is truly out of this world. That's a quote from a research astronomer. He's talking about a picture that the James Webb Space Telescope took as part of a program called PEARLS. And here it is. As you can see, the image shows a unique perspective of the universe, including never-before-seen galaxies that glitter like diamonds. The telescope zoomed in on a part of the sky called the North Ecliptic Pole. It used eight different colors of near-infrared light to see objects that are one billion times fainter than what the eye can see unaided. If you want to take a closer look at this image, it has been published in the Astronomical Journal. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.